0: Hey guys, this is David. We wanted to let you know about an exciting opportunity we don't want you to miss out on. We are hosting our annual Awaken Conference Labor Day weekend in Dallas, Texas. Join 4,000 other young adults from all over the country and world to be a part of seeing an awakening of the hope of the world, which is the church of Jesus in our generation. Go to theporch.live to get a ticket before they sell out. Hope to see you at Awaken 2022. Continuing this series, Anti-Suppressants, looking at things you shouldn't suppress but address. Welcome all of our Ports Live locations, whether that is in Midland, North Houston, Boise, Cedar Rapids, uh, Des Moines, Cincinnati, wherever you are tuning in from. Let me start with some things that I would like to not suppress but address, and it has to do with things that we learned in school that we have never used since. Okay? In other words, some of the curriculum in high school, junior high things that at least I was taught seemed to be things that were crucial in their importance as though you would think these are going to be with you and you're going to have to know how to use this skill for the rest of your life and I don't think I've touched them since. What do I mean by that? Maybe you can relate to some of these. Things like long division. When is the last time you pulled out and you actually went through the math and you kind of did the long division equation? No, but everyone pulls out their phone and uses their calculator. Or the protractor and compass. Remember this? Unless you're an engineer, you have not seen this since seventh grade when you forgot to bring it to school that day. And yet at the time, it was like you would have assumed this is just going to be a part of life for the rest of the time that I'm on the planet. I'm going to be using and diagraphing things like this or things like cursive. I don't know if they still teach cursive anymore, but let's be honest. Anytime you meet somebody under the age of 60 that's writing only in cursive, it's a little concerning. It's like grandma and then this one guy and it's like, huh, really, only cursive. That's all you write in. Not to name names, but Josiah. And, uh, or things like the recorder. Of all the instruments that I wish I could play, I can't play any instruments. And I don't know who came up with this idea. There's so many like, you know, the trumpet and the drums and the piano. Whoever came up with hot cross buns on the recorder. It just is confusing. Or the periodic table, blast from the past there, where maybe you had to memorize and go through and know what scandium was, names that feel like they're out of Star Wars or something, or Latin, and I don't think we have a slide for Latin. There's a girl on our staff who spent eight years studying Latin. It is a dead language. Like, no one speaks it. And I know if you're a Latin person, I'm going to somebody's gonna come up afterwards and be like, well, you know, it's actually really helpful to learn all the romantic languages because of, still, you can't talk to anyone on planet Earth who actually speaks Latin. Or, finally, or the last one, would be maybe the most iconic and bizarre one, which is the dissecting of a frog. <laughs> which you would think is like, man, maybe this would be helpful for understanding the human body. That is not what the human body looks like. And then you contrast that to all the things that we didn't learn that you, upon graduating college, you kind of have to figure out on your own, things that would have been really helpful to learn in school, what do I mean? Like things like how to do your taxes. Or how to, good. How to do a budget. How to change the oil in your car or, When to change the oil in your car, (laughs) as some of you need to learn. Or stress management, how to handle all the stress of life, even like first aid or CPR would have been better than rope climbing in PE. Or interview skills for when that job happens. And last but not least, the subject I wanna talk about tonight which is how to resolve conflict. That there is no, cl- Ooh. <laughs> there is no class that teaches you how to navigate the waters of relationships. And yet relationships are one of the most important aspects of life and specifically your ability to maintain relationships. And none of us were taught a class on that. And for the majority of us, we probably, if we learned anything about how to resolve conflict, it wasn't good and maybe you grew up in a home and what you were taught intentionally or unintentionally directly or indirectly was very poor examples of conflict that you saw and you picked up the way that your parents handled conflict and they either stuffed it under the rug or they exploded in front of each other and what you do and did learn and what became second nature or even how you approach conflict resolution was not helpful and yet in terms of relationships and specifically studies on marriage the number one key defining determiner on your ability to succeed in marriage comes down to your ability to resolve conflict how you handle conflict your relationship health with you and your family and one of the reasons that some of us in the room we don't talk to someone in our family anymore or your holidays consisted of your extended family being there except for that one uncle, your mom's brother or sister. And they're not there because there's a huge breakdown in the relationship that happened that never got addressed. And yet God commands followers of Jesus are to be about reconciliation and restoration of relationships or conflict Resolution. In other words, to be a Christian, not just in the title, there's a lot of people that claim to be a Christian by the title, but to be a Christian with the lifestyle, it involves being people who are committed to conflict resolution. And so tonight, I wanna walk through and give a class, if you will, on the subject and the prescription for not suppressing conflict, but addressing it and running towards it. And what God's word has to say about how you and I can be people who fight for relational unity. So we're gonna walk through three essentials of resolving conflict. Qualities that should mark the people of God. Excuse me, two essentials. And the first one is gonna be why it matters to God, why it's such a big deal. And over and over and over, the New Testament ethic Jesus introduced was radical. And it's still radical today in our world. And as believers, we're not just to know that it's important to God, but also know exactly how to practice that. So we're gonna walk through very specifically how that happens. So the first idea comes from Matthew chapter five, verse nine. It says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Three sentences into Jesus's ministry. He says, the ability to bring peace into situations is what will mark, or one of the things that will mark the people of God, the children of God. They will resemble the God who brings peace. The first idea I want to talk about is a change in your perspective. As it relates to conflict and conflict resolution, I want you to change your perspective. What do I mean by that? The Bible doesn't teach conflict is a bad thing. Conflict is an inevitable thing. It teaches conflict is not necessarily bad. In other words, a lot of us think, and you were raised in a home and it was so divided and your parents had so much fighting all the time that you just began to believe this lie that, hey man, conflict is a really bad thing. So now in a dating relationship, when that pops up, you run. And the Bible doesn't say it's a bad thing. It says it's an opportunity to honor God and how you resolve the conflict, how you bring about peace, It's an opportunity to honor God and to strengthen that relationship. The first thing involves a change in perspective. Two primary things to change as it relates to your perspective. One, conflict is not a bad thing. All right, class, here we go together. We're all gonna say it together. This is the master class on conflict resolution. On three, we're gonna say, conflict is not a bad thing. Ready? One, two, three. Conflict is not a bad thing. All right, one more time. This time, even the men, okay? Conflict is not a bad thing. It is an opportunity to honor God and to strengthen your relationship by moving towards that person. In fact, if you're in a dating relationship and you have conflict, you should not be as concerned as the person who's in a dating relationship that doesn't. Even secular studies show that in dating couples or in any couple where there is not conflict present. It's just inevitable, two people coming together, there's gonna be disagreements. That is a reflection of one person not actually expressing how they feel and growing resentful or of codependency. Like even, you don't have to be a Christian and people go, hey, if there's a relationship where there's never any sort of conflict, they're not going to have a lot of intimacy because one of them is not being honest. And so you shouldn't be concerned about having conflict present. You should be very much concerned about how to resolve the conflict. But the first thing I want to hammer is that conflict is not a bad thing. It is an opportunity to honor God and to strengthen relationships. And Jesus said, hey, when you are people who bring peace, like you're the type of person that you seek to bring peace in that relationship, bring restoration in that relationship, you look, like children of God. I've got three kids. All three of them have in common that they are the children of my wife and I, and they all have shockingly similar physical characteristics. It's like we just make, we make one style of child. You look at them and you're like, you are all, you're all the same people. Like even their baby pictures, it looks like the same exact kid. And they also look like a blend of their mom and dad, because as we all know, children resemble their parents. And Jesus said, followers of him will resemble their father in heaven, and that they seek to bring peace about, not to win an argument, but to restore a relationship, to have unity, and to be united. And it is a big deal to God, which is the second thing. So as it relates to changing your perspective, the two ways that we often think conflict is a bad thing, or we think it's not a big deal, and the Bible says it is a big deal to God. Jesus, over and over and over again taught, prioritize relationships. I want you to prioritize relationships with one another as a reflection of your prioritization of the priority of your relationship with God. What do I mean? Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he gave some teaching that would have been profound when his audience heard this. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first message ever looks into this audience, teaches on conflict resolution. And he says this, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, when we read that, we're like leaving your gift at the altar, okay. No idea what that means. And maybe you think of the father's arms are open wide or something like that when it comes to the altar. What Jesus' audience heard, one commentator said, it is the most inconvenient command Jesus ever gave. Because when his audience heard, hey, when you're bringing your gift to the altar, what's he saying? First century Judaism, there was a temple right down the road or in the city of Jerusalem, there's a temple and in that temple, you would bring sacrifices for different sin or gift offerings just as a reflection of gratitude to God. And here's what that looked like. One time a year, two times a year, whenever you would go to present those, you get the whole family together. Get them all on the donkey, get them all on the camel, getting all the kids together, we're going into town. We're navigating the streets of Jerusalem, very narrow streets, we finally arrive at the temple. We gotta go up these huge steps on the southern side of the temple and wait in a line, wait in a line that at times would last days, certainly lasted hours. And he says, after you go, we get all the family together. Everyone's hanging out. We're finally moving up the line, just like we're at Disney World. We finally get to the very front of the line. And I've got it. And honey, we're going to give our gift at the altar. We've waited two days to do this. And here we go. And as you're walking up to the altar and you remember Sarah. And Sarah is frustrated with you about something. Jesus says, I want you to leave your gift right by the side of the altar. And I want you to go and I want you to go find Sarah. Who knows if that gift will be there when you get back? There weren't fast passes or somebody to save your place in line. Doesn't matter, Jesus said. Leave it. Go address the issue that Sarah is frustrated with you about. He doesn't say whether it's legitimate, whether you think it's justified. He says, I want you to go and pursue them and restore that. Then come back Wait in the whole line again with the kids, get up to the front of the line, hopefully the offering is still there, and give your gift to God. So we read that, and we run right by it, and we're like, yeah, it's important to reconcile. His audience would have heard, that is unbelievable. And it's a reflection of how Jesus' relationships were such a huge priority to him. In fact, you read that, and I read that, and you go, man, it seems like Jesus is saying, hey, I want, you to prioritize worship, or I want you to prioritize relationships this way over worship of God. And Jesus would say, no, you prioritizing relationships this way is how you worship God, is one of the ways that you worship God. And you reflect that you are children of a heavenly father when you do so. Christians are meant to, and we're about to walk through exactly how, which is one of the ways that we stand apart as it relates to resolving conflict, but we're to be people who are passionate about resolving conflict together and who look different than the world around us in the way that, man, you crossed me too many times, I'm done with you, I'm out, I'm cutting you out of my life and my relationships, and we're to be people who run towards one another. I have a friend who today was telling me a story, he went to a wedding recently, and at the wedding, the groom had family that was from another country, And the way that the wedding went down and the reception in particular was based on the culture of that other country. And one of the things that they did is that the bride and groom they come together and they do like a money shower where in the bride and groom dance, the people at the reception will throw money at the couple as a reflection of like support and blessing. And my friend is sitting there watching this and he's like, man, that is so unusual and I didn't know I was supposed to bring cash. And the guy at his table was like, man, I got like 20 ones you can have and you can go throw them. And he goes, I don't know that I am comfortable throwing $1 bills at the bride as she dances at this wedding. And the guy was like, no, it's totally normal. And he was like, hard pass. Because it was so counterculture. For them, it was. It's totally normal. It's part of their culture. But from the outside, it just seemed bizarre. And what Jesus says about the church and about Christians is that you, are, you and I are to live in such a way that the world around us looks and goes, that is so bizarre. And if that's not happening in how you relate to people, the ways that you pursue relationships with people, the ways that you don't give up on conflict, the means are the ends to which you'll go to forgive someone, to care for someone, the humility that marks your life. If you look like the world, that should concern you because it may mean that you're not actually a part of this different culture called Christians and that you and I are to, in other words, listen to me, if everything I'm saying right now seems so crazy and like how could you, are you serious? What kind of land do you live in where you just pursue people even when they hurt you and even when they've treated you that way? that doesn't seem right are you operating from a filter informed by god's word or informed by the world around us in your experience because the bible says you and i are to operate through the filter in the lens of god's word so in other words if what i'm saying is uncomfortable that's because jesus said this teaching if you have the mindset of the world it's going to be uncomfortable And if we're honest, myself included, we've all been informed by how the world thinks about relationships and how we pursue them. And I don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. And Jesus said, in following me, it may be uncomfortable, but it's going to lead to light and life spreading in our world. And as Christians, we are to not resemble the world around us, but to look like our Father in heaven who's a peacemaker. So the first thing involves a change in perspective. And now I wanna walk through very practically how we don't suppress those conflicts when those things pop up and they make that comment or they say that thing or they forget to invite me or they forget to do something that I expected them to do. What do we do with that? And not suppress it, but address it and walk through a change in your practice. And this is gonna go through five very specific things as it relates to how, do I navigate conflict resolution? So a change in your practice. First, the Bible says change your perspective. Conflict is not bad. It's an opportunity to honor God, strengthen your relationship. And it's a really big deal to God. Same, or the second thing is to change your practice, how you and I go about resolving conflict. The first thing is to overlook an offense if you can that we overlook it if we can. Let me read these words. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. A person's wisdom yields patience, but it is to one's glory, it's a glorious thing to overlook an offense. Now, he's not talking about peace faking, In contrast to peacemaking, he's saying it's a glorious thing. If somebody offends you, somebody does something that kind of rubs you the wrong way, if you can, with integrity, overlook it. Believe the best. They forgot to say that or the way they said that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to move on. It's okay. I'm sure they didn't mean anything by it. And not live in denial and not stuff it down to bring up at a later time where you're building a case on how they always. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is a glorious thing if Somebody does an action, and you're able to overlook it, to forgive it, to extend grace. So the first thing is, when somebody rubs you the wrong way, to overlook it if you can. Now, how do you know if you can? Ready? It's really, really, really important. If you can. In other words, there's things in life that you'll find yourself unable to overlook them. And that's okay, and you don't need to pretend that's not the case. But then you have to go on to the next step. And not do so because you're afraid of bringing up, and I just don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation. No, to overlook it because you genuinely can. There's times, there's things, moments in all of our lives where you've eaten something, and you know, oh, man, this is not settling right. And this is probably going to come back up, and I'm going to see that food again. Or there's moments where, man, you ate something, and you're like, oh, man, I don't know. I I think it's, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm a little, uh, it's a little upset, but I think I'm going to be okay. We've all been there. Same thing is true with conflict. Like there's times where somebody says something and you're like, man, okay. That stung and yet I'm sure they had a lot going on. They were moving quick and honestly, it's okay. And then there's other times where an event happens, someone hurts your feelings, someone does something that is sin against you, and you know, man, this is not going away. Like, you're driving down the road, and you're replaying the tape, and you're thinking in the shower about, man, if that conversation happens again, and I'm gonna look at her, and I'm gonna go, ha, you're the problem, and you're beginning to play it out, and there's no one even around you. and You have arrived at the destination of, you cannot overlook that offense. And so you've got to do something with that. And thankfully, Jesus gives really, really practical teaching on how you and I are to do this. And he does so in two places in particular. One is in Matthew chapter seven and one is in Matthew chapter 18 and he walks through exactly how you do this. Are so you ready? The first thing after, man, can I overlook it or can I not is that you and I are to own our part, own your part before you go and you ask them to own and you say, this is how you hurt me and I can't believe that you borrowed my clothes again without asking or you always leave the dishes dirty in the dishwasher or you forgot about my birthday for the third time that I'm gonna go and I'm gonna own my part. This comes from Matthew chapter seven. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Jesus brings up Jesus jokes, basically, and he tells a story or gives a parable of basically saying, it's like there's two men and one of them has like a little tiny piece of dust in their eye and there's a guy that has like a giant two by four just swinging out of the face, out of his face and he looks at the guy with the speck and he's like, hey, you know you got a speck in your eye, let me get that out of your, for, out of their, out of your eye for you. Jesus says, It's ridiculous. You should first own your stuff and not stop there and don't focus on anybody else because the next verse he says, and then after you've owned your part, then address someone else's part. He says this in verse five, you hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, he's not saying never bring up someone else's speck. He's saying prioritize owning your faults first. That in every conflict, broken relationship, divided relationship, that you and I have a part to own. It's like this. And when we think about it, we often don't think about it like this. But in every conflict there's what you would call the blame pie. And when we think about the conflict and you think about the dysfunction that you have in your relationship with the girl that you dated and the fact that he cheated on you and you can't believe that that would happen and all the ways that you think about the conflict or the tension that you have with someone else, there's your part and their part. And... So you, you can think about it, like this is the pie, and this is how much. Often we'll think, okay, well, is it 50-50? I don't know anybody who ever thinks it's 50-50. If anything, they're like, they they're the problem, and if they wouldn't have done this, and X, Y, and Z. And so let's, let's be more realistic, and maybe you don't think it's 50-50, but you think it's more like 25-75, Honestly, I don't know anybody who thinks it's this. If I'm being honest, when people come down front, they're talking about they did this and I can't believe they did this. Here's really how they think about it. They think about it like they have all of this and I have this little itty bitty on there. Sure, I, I could have been, you know, the fact that I was dating him in the first place and he wasn't walking with Jesus, you know, that's on me. But he, what he did, the fact that, you know, I was rude to her, and I talked bad about her behind her back, and I gossiped about her in the name of venting? Sure, that's on me, but it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't done that, and so I guess I have something, and Jesus is saying, you own 100% of your 1%. No matter how big or small your portion in that conflict is, that as believers, were to go first and say, Will you please forgive me for blank? I want to own everything that I can. It was a story of a guy that had his life changed here at the porch, and he grew up in a really abusive environment with his father. And his dad was just physically violent with him. And neither of them were Christians, and eventually this young man becomes a young adult, and he wants nothing to do with his father. And he comes to the porch, and he trusts in Jesus, and he's encouraged hey you need to own 100% of your 1%. I are, you, are you kidding me? After all the years and the pain and the abuse that I went through, anything that I did was well-deserved. If you want to experience healing, you've got to own 100% of your 1%. And the man began to say, okay, well, uh, sure, I, I, couldn't, I could have not cussed him out. I could have treated him more kindly. I was so hurt and I lashed out at times at him. And he went to his father, he's much older now, and he asked him for forgiveness for the way that he had spoken disrespectfully, for the words that he had used. And his father, who was 99.999%, fell to his knees seeing someone who had, according to the world, and honestly, I think most of us say, every right to just move on, despite all the pain, come and say, will you forgive me? I mean, I've seen marriages restored that involved, this is the story of of one of our elders, him and his wife. There was an adultery that was committed. And the person who didn't commit adultery but had the adultery committed on them as they were processing through healing, asked forgiveness for not pursuing them and pursuing intimacy and for not being as present of a, husband, of a husband as God would have had him be. Now, in that situation, when you're the one who just had adultery committed on you, everything in the world would say, how dare you? you I, I don't have anything to own. And yet Jesus says, You and I are to constantly own our part. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not saying that if you're in an abusive, emotionally, physically, environment, or relationship, you need to stay there. But I'm speaking about, as believers, this radical commitment and humbly saying, will you forgive me? And I'm gonna own 100% of my 1%. And you know what? It's a lot smaller than all the ways that I feel I was wronged. But Jesus says... You need to own your part. How do I know what part I likely have to own in my conflict resolution? This is really big, especially if you're in a dating couple. Here's how you likely know how you may have contributed to that conflict. You need to check your weenie. Stay with me. What do I mean by that? (laughs) Weenie is an acronym for your style of conflict for your style of how you fight or how you may conflict with people. It involves withdrawal escalate negatively interpret or invalidate weenie and as somebody who is in a relationship you need to know man this is the type of patterns that typically i have when conflict happens you're the classic enneagram nine and you just withdraw and you pretend it didn't happen and you just try to move on with life and yet you're stuffing it and stuffing it with stuffing it and you may need to own the part of hey this happened eight weeks ago and I need to ask for your forgiveness because it hurt me then and I didn't bring it up. And you're owning your part that you did not do what Jesus said, which is be quick to address, hurts. Ephesians chapter four says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give the devil a foothold in your soul. The Greek word for foothold that he uses is literally a room. He says, don't, don't harbor anger and give the devil room in your heart. Like you're giving them a place to stay and you work quickly. So maybe one of the ways that you need to own is, man, I've been holding on to this and I should have brought this to you. Maybe you're an escalator like me where in the midst of conflict, they may withdraw and I'm married to a withdrawaler. And as an escalator, that just makes you like double down. Okay. All right. Well, we're going on the move. Okay, let's go. And uh, (laughs) so wrong. And you're an escalator, man. And you're like, okay. And... They just say something, and you begin to go back and forth and back and forth, you may need to go, hey, okay, something me and my wife have to do. it. We're going to take a time out. We're going to bring this back up because you're going to want to withdraw, and I'm going to want to escalate because you're withdrawing, and so if you're the withdrawer, you can withdraw to have some time to process, and you need to be committed that we are going to come back and have this conversation, but maybe your role is to escalate, and the best thing you could do is just, man, I'm going to take a minute... A time out to breathe maybe you're a negative interpreter and the lens you see the world through you're constantly finding yourself as the victim of everything is you're hurt and now the person who walked past you and didn't say hi, you're like, well, they don't care about me, and they don't care about me, and they don't care about me, and my boss said, when are you gonna have those reports, and he knows how hard I've been working, and my mom called and said, "Um, honey, I'm looking for those pair of shoes, and I bet she thinks I stole them, and everything you see life through is just a negative interpretation. Or maybe you're an invalidator, that the person comes to you, and this is is really, almost doesn't need to be said, but needs to be said. If somebody says, hey, you hurt my feelings. Telling them why they shouldn't have their feelings hurt doesn't help anyone. And it's never helped anyone in the history of the world. So when I come to you and I say, hey man, it really hurt me when you made that comment about me and you begin to go, well, that's just because you're overly sensitive and you really shouldn't be hurt by things like that and I can't believe that you would even be there. You should take that to the Lord. Not helpful for anybody. And you're invalidating. And those feelings may not be reliable They may not even be anchored in truth, but they're real in the sense that they're what they feel. And as believers, we're to be quick to listen, James chapter 1 says, slow to speak, quick to seek to understand and to own our part and do everything I can to bring unity in that relationship about as quickly as possible. What if you don't know your part to own? This is where we invite God and ask him through prayer and others around us. And we will help us see our part. When I was growing up, I had a friend that every time I went to his house, it smelled so bad. And I feel like everyone has this friend. Am I right? And if you don't have that friend, you may be that friend. And (laughs) I would go to his house and it would smell. And I would be like, man, it smells so bad in here. And he couldn't smell it. And this honestly created like a phobia in me of... Maybe my house smells bad, and I can't smell it, and nobody's gonna tell me that it smells bad, but it smelled bad. Like, true story, I'm like, to this day, my paranoia is like, I don't wanna have the home that my kids bring people over, and they're like, man, this house smells, and nobody's told them because my friend, he couldn't smell it, it's all he knew. And unless somebody from the outside comes and says, bro, this this smells in here, wouldn't, know. And that's where we invite God's people in, that hey, I, I have thought through all the different ways that I could have hurt them and I can't see any of it. Will you help me so that I can own 100% of my part? So you overlook it if you can, then you own your part. Then Jesus goes through the four steps as you go to them and you own your part that we walk through. It says this, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. They do something that sins against you, that hurts you. Do it just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. This is, this is further where Jesus' teaching is so radical. He says, hey, if somebody sins, if somebody hurts you, if somebody says something, somebody offends you. You're to go to them individually. In other words, you're not gonna spread around you know, the work office or spread around just y'all's other relationships, how they hurt you and how offensive and how they always know. I'm gonna go straight to them. That I'm gonna seek to honor and even protect them And I'm going to go directly to them. And I'm going to own my part and say, hey, when you continue to treat me like that roommate, it makes me feel blank. In other words, I'm going to go directly to them, not somebody else. I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to own 100% of my part. And that could be, I need to ask your forgiveness because I haven't brought this to you. Or I need to ask your forgiveness because I've already shared that this frustrated me with someone else. And that's called gossip. And that's not right. But when you continue to not pay me rent, it makes me feel anxious about not being able to afford it. It makes me feel like you don't care. It makes me feel like you don't consider how that affects me. Whatever the sin is, in other words, you focus on the specific action that they took and the emotional response it created in you. Let me say that again. You focus on the specific action that they did. When you did blank, it made me feel blank. So often when we do this, we go to them, and we say, how dare you not invite me to go to the movies with you in that group. You know that I'm so insecure. This is because you don't care about anybody but yourself, just like the last time you did this. And we focus on motive, and we focus on track record, and we bring in all kinds of things that we have clearly been harboring and holding on to, and we begin to prove a case against them. The Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs. So if we're gonna operate in love, which is the way that we're called to operate, then we go and we say, hey, when you didn't invite me with that group, it made me feel like you don't care about me. And that hurt my feelings because I think of you as a close friend. And I felt left out. So I focus on the specific action. This, this is for things big and things small that was done by them and how it made you feel. And it says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. And if they don't, Jesus says, then you take the next step. And he says in verse 16, if they will not listen, Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the steps we take, overlook it if we can, we own our part, we go to them, only them, and if they won't listen, then we widen the circle slowly and only as necessary. And so I bring somebody else along. So if... uh, On my team, if there's conflict involving me and Josiah or me and JD or JD and Josiah, they're called to go to one another directly. They have that conversation. If they cannot resolve it, then they would widen the circle to one or two others. Ideally, the person that you bring, I love that it says one or two, because sometimes you have a mutual person that feels objective and hey, we're just gonna call them, they're our mutual friend. Sometimes it feels like, well, they're gonna be on your side, so I need to bring somebody on my side. Ideally, nobody's on sides, we're on Jesus's side. And the goal is not to win and convince, it's to restore relationship, to hear and understand, to move towards each other. And Jesus says, and then you bring somebody else along, and you walk through it again. Specifically, this is the action you took, this is how it hurt me, and hopefully they begin to realize that they have erred. This this is only for Christians, by the way. This is specifically for Christians, and they're moving towards one another. And Jesus then says, if they won't listen still, then you bring it to the church. And that day, the word church in Greek is the Greek word for assembly. It's the gathering. It's the group. It's, in other words, not the porch, where if you are in conflict and they won't listen to two of you, bring them down front, and next week, we're gonna be like, this is Bob. Bob (laughs) wasn't listening to his roommate about, that's not what it means. It's saying like the small group. You widen it, only as necessary. That's the principle in the heart of Jesus' teaching. And if they still don't listen, verse 17, if they refuse to listen even to you, to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. So he's not saying, shun them, create a Facebook page that's closed, that just highlights all the errors that they've had. He says, you love them. You just don't call them to follow Jesus in the same way that you call other believers and sisters in Christ to follow Jesus. You're not gonna hold them accountable because they're saying, I don't wanna be held accountable. I wanna live how I want. And to that person, Jesus still loved them. He still spent time with them. He still cared for them. He just knew, I'm not gonna call you to following Jesus because you've made it clear you don't want to. And my heart still hopes that you do, and I still want you to. But I'm not going to call you to do that, because you've made it clear it's not what you, at least today, want. But the heart is always for relational unity together. And this is where the church, Satan, the word for Satan in Greek is, is the Greek word diablos, like devil, diablo. The Greek word diablos comes from the root of divide, like diameter runs right through the middle. Satan's entire offense is to divide. In other words, if you're in a place where you're finding yourself justifying, he doesn't know what they did and how they hurt me, and I don't need to do anything, and they need to own their part, and I'm not moving towards them. I just want you to consider if the offense of staying divided is you operating underneath the spirit of God, or the way of the world, which is the way of Satan, that he wants division. And anytime we see that happening versus unity and people coming together and having real, transparent, authentic, I'm moving towards you. And I seek to understand you and seek to support you and seek to forgive you. Those things are not of this world. Those things are supernatural, led by the Spirit of God. But anytime we see in culture division happening and dividing, that's his entire to kill and destroy. And I want to separate, and I want to separate. And right now in every community group, in every relationship, in every person in this room, that is the offense he is seeking to establish and he hates If people forgive and they move towards one another and they walk in humility and they own their part and they come together. He wants you to go, Hey, they're not going to change. You could bring that up. That's what he's telling you. You could bring that up to them. They're not going to own their part. They're going to look at you and say, your feelings are invalidated or your feelings are invalid and you shouldn't do any of that. And that is not the spirit of God. And it may be that same spirit who calls us to do things that are uncomfortable Like forgiving for being the first person to own our part when we were the one clearly wronged is exactly the spirit of God at work in your heart and in your life, making you look more like your father in heaven who's calling you to forgive. And when you do and move towards that person, you're going to experience healing because you'll be set free from a bondage of bitterness, from a prison of resentment. And Jesus is saying, you can come out of that cage, but it's gonna involve you forgiving and moving towards them. So the final example is loving them. So let me walk through really quickly. I'm gonna have two people come up on stage and give very fast examples of what this should look like. This is Garrett and Heather. Welcome to the stage, Garrett and Heather. Okay. Heather is going to have this dice. It says believer on one side. This is going to have a number of different relationships because that's the most practical thing people want to know. By the way, these people have no relationship or romantic relationship. Heather's actually engaged off the market. Garrett, fair game. And uh, he's not fair game. He's dating someone too. Are you engaged? He's dating, okay, this is getting awkward real fast. Let's walk through exactly, very quickly scenarios because when they're not a believer, the games change, the rules change, and the most loving thing to do is to not confront them in the same way that you would a non-believer. So let's go with unbeliever. So your unbelieving coworker at work, they've offended you and they made a comment about the way that you dress or the people that you spend your time with, whatever it is. What should you do in that situation? Depending on the level of relationship, it's not inappropriate for you to say that hurt my feelings, but high level, the goal in that context is to, man, I'm going to extend grace. I'm going to treat you not like you treated me rudely, but like God treated me in Jesus. And I'm going to own my part in any way that I can. And I'm going to ask for your forgiveness. Let's say they're a believer and there's someone that you're in a dating relationship with. And you have conflict and you're feeling some sort of way about the way that they treated you and the fact that they didn't take you on a date and they said that they were or they just miscommunicated and ladies, guys, we're just idiots at times, so we don't even know that we've hurt someone. Here's what you do, you go to them, guy or girl, and you say, hey, when you said, oh, believer, when you said that, it hurt my feelings. When you did that, it made me feel like you don't care. And this opens the door For them to respond and strengthen your relationship and say, it wasn't that I didn't care. I didn't call you on my way home from work because I was on a business call that didn't end and I just kept, I I had to continue that call. And so it wasn't that I didn't want to catch up and I'm not concerned or I don't care about you. It's that I was still working. And that thorn that had been planted in your mind of he doesn't care about me, she doesn't care about me is addressed and you're able to move towards one another. Now let's say they're an unbeliever who's a family member or an unbeliever who's a friend, let's go there. They're an unbeliever who's a friend who you have a relationship with and they did something and it really hurts you. If they're not a believer in Jesus, someone operating without the Spirit of God who doesn't operate, like the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. They're not gonna have those things. So first, we understand, I have a level of grace for them because they are not walking with Jesus. Of course, they're not gonna treat people like Jesus calls us to because they're not following Jesus. And I'm gonna seek to own my part in every way that I can, I'm gonna extend grace. Of course, there's times where we put a boundary in place because it's an unhealthy relationship or they are treating you in a way that is toxic and unhealthy, but even then, I'm going to hope and desire this relationship gets restored at some point. Let's say it's somebody who is a believer, who formerly you dated. Or let's, let's go with unbeliever. And you were a believer. One of the most God-honoring things maybe you can do, because you were dating someone, God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you're not six, you're not supposed to be dating. Because he says, you're not supposed to have relationships, romantic relationships with people who don't share your faith. And maybe the most God honoring thing you can do is you need to pick up the phone after this service or tomorrow and say, will you forgive me? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And I dated someone who wasn't walking with Jesus. And that had to be confusing. Or it at least communicated that my faith is really not that big of a deal. And my relationship with God is not that big of a deal. And it gave you a watered-down version of Christianity that, man, she says she's a Christian, but she still puts out? And it confused you. And I'm really sorry. And you're taking an uncomfortable step in seeking to honor God and strengthen relationships. Let me send these guys off. Give it up for Garrett and Heather. (laughs) Engaged and... Happily dating. And close with this the reason this is such a big deal to Jesus, and I'm landing on the plane here, is because God, all throughout the Bible, his whole mission was to establish reconciling and restoring relationships. And God has made the first move. He has said, I'm going to move in the direction of humanity despite all the ways that they have not wanted it, they don't deserve it, and I am going to seek to be the first person who initiates. I want to make way for that relationship. So, of course, he's going to be passionate about it. In other words, in every dating relationship, there's somebody who makes the first move. We've said before, like there's either the guy who, you know, calls her up. And someday you're going to tell this story at your rehearsal dinner when the two of you are together, like this married couple that's here honeymooning at the porch. Love that. Some people go Hawaii. Some people go to the porch. Let's go. And... You're going to tell your story at your rehearsal dinner. And I bet it happened with them where somebody gets up and they begin to go like, yeah, the girl tells her perspective on here's how he made the move. And I was there and I got a random phone call. And I was like, well, whose number is this? And he was like, hey, my name's uh, Kyle. And, you know, I got your number from, uh, from Kevin who got it from Sarah. And I just wanted to know. And you tell the story of them making the first move. Or it's the girl who makes the first move. And, you know, he ends up breaking his ankle playing pickup basketball with some boys. And she's like, oh, man, I just wanted to stop by. And... um bring some cookies over after I spent time praying with the Lord for three hours and she's just making the first move and you're gonna tell that story. Every person who's ever lived that comes to know Jesus, their story is that God made the first move. And he invited them into a relationship by sending his one and only son, Jesus, on the cross. And let me be abundantly clear, here's what it means to be a Christian, here's why God is so passionate about reconciling relationships, because the whole arc of the Bible is the story of God seeking to reconcile relationships. And he has made a way by making the first move, by sending Jesus on the planet as a payment for your sin. And he died in your place and he rose from the grave. So, that you can have forgiveness of everything past, everything present, everything future that you have ever done. And you know what forgiveness does? It allows the relationship to be restored. You cannot have a restoration of relationship without forgiveness taking place. It does not restore the relationship, but it allows the relationship to be prepared, to be reconciled and restored. And God said, any person who accepts the payment of Jesus receives forgiveness and is reconciled to God. And the whole teaching of the Bible is God's intention to do that with his people. And then it says when the spirit of God gets into the heart of a person, they embrace that passion that God has. That until the last breath they breathe, I am going to be about pursuing reconciliation and restoration because I'm going to sin and you're going to sin and we're going to mess up. And when it happens, we can either run from each other or run towards each other because God ran towards us. And that's what the Bible teaches. And tonight, there's some calls that probably need to be made. Some texts you need to send. You don't need to raise your hands and say, how great is our God. You need to say, man, I need to talk to you. And you need to go and you need to own your part. And you may need to, in that share, this is how it hurt me. And everything inside of you, it won't feel natural and you're not gonna wanna do it and you're gonna wanna tell me why I'm wrong. But that's the spirit of God. If it's moving you towards healing and forgiveness, and if it's not, and moving you away from it, that is the spirit of this world, or that is the spirit of Satan. And God wants you to experience freedom And unleash freedom. And so I'm going to pray. And I just want to pray. And as I do, there may be names that come to mind. Or there's someone in your life. And you may need to, before they die, that you don't have to stand at a tombstone someday and say, man, I forgive you. And I'm moving on. And they're a believer. And you're going to move towards them. And you're going to humbly own everything that you can. And then share the ways that, maybe their actions hurt and how it made you feel. And the only reason you're sharing is because you want to have a restored relationship and you love them and you want restoration because of the God who extended restoration to you. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone right now who has a family member, has a hurt, has relational brokenness that they're carrying in here, that you would be bigger than the pain, you would be more real than the hurt, and you would strengthen them to move in the direction of that person, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's not fair. But they would do so because of the way you moved towards us in our direction even though it was not comfortable to be crucified on a cross and it was not fair that you would die for me and my sin and you would make us people of grace love and forgiveness who run quick to reconcile in Jesus' name amen